Welcome to Fellowship Podcast. We're so excited you tuned in. For more information about who we are, check out our website at fbclife.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, church. It's so good to be back here with you virtually. We got to hang out in my basement last week. This week, we get to hang out up here in my living room. Before we jump in, I do have a couple of quick things I want to say. The first thing I want to say is thank you so much for your prayers, your compassion, and your grace during this season. We have had a a number of folks on our staff team test COVID positive. I'm happy to report that in God's grace, all of them have had very minor symptoms and they're all on the mend at this point. And we are excited to be back with you in person next week for our worship service then. Second thing I'd love for you to know about is right today coming up, we have uh, Financial Peace University. Dave Turner is going to be leading our church through Financial Peace. It is an unbelievably helpful curriculum in helping us think about what it looks like to steward the resources that God has entrusted to us well. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't been through Financial Peace, go ahead and hop on to fbclife.org forward slash classes. Get signed up for Financial Peace. And on top of all of that, you'll get the privilege of hanging out with Dave for several weeks in a row. Hey, we are in the middle of our With series. And listen, this is only going to become more obvious as we walk step by step toward an election. It's only going to become more obvious every week that we continue walking through a COVID-19 pandemic. Both those things are, are abnormal, but they're really exposing very normal things about our hearts and our lives as Christians. You see, both the pandemic and the election season is showing us something that's always been true. Our culture needs something from those of us who claim the name of Jesus. Our culture does not need those of us who are Christians to be weird because of how strange we are. So we can go ahead and put away the bumper stickers. Our culture also does not need us to be weird because of how not strange we are. We just do life the same as as everybody else. What our culture needs more than anything else is Christians who are different because they've been with their Savior that day. Do you know what I mean? They go to the same job as everybody else, but they approach their vocation different because they've been with Jesus that day. They are walking through the same election season as everybody else, but they approach politics different because they've been with Jesus that day. They're walking through the same global pandemic as everybody else, but they approach the virus different because they've been with Jesus that day. They're devoted to their family and their friends, but they approach family and friends differently because they've been with Jesus that day. You see, if you're a Christian, we have a holy responsibility in this cultural moment. We get to show people a different path than the ones that our culture is laying before most of us. And listen, if you're just peeking over the fence into Christianity trying to figure this whole thing out, man, this is really good news. You see, Christianity does not primarily say, hey, sign on a commitment card and then you get out of hell free. God will save you from the penalty of your sin by paying for all of it, placing it on his son's shoulders. That's good news. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, this morning is a great morning to do that. Receive forgiveness and cleansing from Jesus. But part of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus also gives us a new life in him. We get to live life day by day with our Savior. We get to live life abiding in his love. And letting that love overflow into our relationships with other people and empowered by his spirit and hearing from him in his word and connecting with him in 
prayer. Can you imagine that kind of life? How do we get there? Well, that's what this series has been about. Like brass tacks, how can we live life day by day with our Savior, captured by his grace towards us, feeling his goodness and love to us, excited by the mission he's called us to? How do we get there? If you want to live life with your Savior like that, there are a set of pathways that Christians, for all of our 2,000-year history, have used as means by which we meet deeply with our Savior. Now, these pathways have traditionally been called spiritual disciplines, but I've been being a little bit sneaky over the course of our series. I haven't used that phrase, spiritual discipline, because I know that the moment I say spiritual disciplines, the vast majority of us jump into moralism. I have to do these seven things if God's going to accept me. I have to do these five things if God's really going to love me. i got to read my Bible. i got to pray. i got to share my faith. have to tithe. And then God will be happy with me. And before we know it, things that we call spiritual disciplines begin feeling like cinder blocks tied around our neck. And as your pastor who loves you, I want to tell you, that's not the point of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are pathways through which we meet with the Savior of the world. They're pathways to enjoying and experiencing our birthright as followers of Jesus, a relationship with the God of the universe. Today, we're going to talk about a pathway, a spiritual discipline that most often isn't talked about in contexts like this one. If you read books on spiritual disciplines, you'll find that this particular discipline is not regularly talked about in those books. But I've become convinced over the last month and a half or so that this spiritual discipline in particular is especially important for Christians in October of 2020. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to spend some time talking about confession. Pray with me. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for the privilege of getting to meet with you in your word in this place. So God, I ask that you would move. You'd speak to us. You'd challenge us. And especially in light of the topic this week, God, I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. We love you. We thank you that you meet with us in places like this. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you've been with us for a season of time, you know that I have a very standard formula for my sermons. I'll usually start by making some announcements about some things that are going on in the life of our church. Molly's constantly trying to get me to make that portion shorter, but I just I just can't help myself. I'm excited about what God's doing in our midst. And then usually I'll have a double intro, which all of the sermon scholars say is a terrible idea, but oh well. I'll do an intro to our sermon series, and then I'll do some usually more ridiculous, more intentionally funny intro into the sermon. So we'll get to talk about the craziness that my son Teddy brings into my house. Right now he's really into mommy, mommy, come alive, but he likes to cheat, which drives my rule-breaking daughter crazy. And I love to just sit back and enjoy watching that dynamic play itself out. Or we'll talk about how ridiculous early 2000s Justin was with his goatee and his cargo shorts and his terrible life decisions. Or, or we'll spend time talking about how silly some of the things our culture says about happiness or morality or meaning actually are. But not this week. We're not going to go the funny route this week. And it's not because I want to be Debbie Downer. We're not going to go the funny route this week because I'm convinced that what we're going to talk about today is eternally 
urgent. Our staff team has been meeting for all of my time here on Tuesday mornings from 10 until 12. But for the last six or so months, we have been praying two things every staff meeting with the exception of this past week's staff meeting because I forgot. The first thing we've prayed for every staff meeting for the last six months is we've prayed for unity. In the midst of this divided cultural moment, we've prayed for unity. This is a divided moment. I mean, everybody's at each other's throats right now in our culture. And part of it is that we have very real substantive things that we need to talk about as a culture. And if the presidential debate from a couple of weeks ago proved anything, we seem to have lost the ability to have conversation with one another. Part of it is that we're all a little bit frayed because we're walking through a pandemic. Our lot in life in the midst of the pandemic is not what we thought it would be. And the net result is that this is a particularly divided moment in the history of our country, the history of our culture. And so every week for the past six months, we've been praying that the division that marks our culture right now would not mark Jesus's church on Farm Road 205 that we would have conversations with one another rather than talk about one another behind each other's backs, that we believe the best, that we'd be calm, that we'd not assume the worst. And by God's grace, praise him. He's been answering that prayer in our midst in this season. The second thing we've prayed for every week for the last six months is we've prayed for revival. We've prayed that God in his grace, would move in big ways, in power in our community. That people all over our community would meet Jesus and be changed by him. That Christians all over our community would stand up in their neighborhood and point their neighbors to Jesus. That all over the place in our community, people would turn from worshiping false gods who cannot satisfy and turn to the one true God who can satisfy. That God would move in such power that only he could get the glory for it. And that our entire community would not be known for having that trendy church there that celebrity pastor there, that big church down there, but our community would be known for having a great and glorious Savior who changes hearts. Now, every time for the last six months that we've prayed that prayer, I've thought about the sermon that Jerry gave two weeks ago, and I've thought about this sermon this week. Because what I know is looking at Christian history, there are two prerequisites from God's people if there's going to be revival. First, when, when God's people have prayed, there tends to be revival. Now, God can do what he wants. He's a sovereign God. But when God's people have tended to do two things, he has tended to move in big ways alongside of those two things. The first thing is prayer. Our God is glorified by his people asking for big things from him. Like Jerry said it a couple of weeks ago, we worship a God who's glorified when his people persistently ask him to move over and over again. And then second, not only does God tend to move alongside of the prayers of his people, God also tends to move when his people have gotten on their face in repentance and confession for their own sins. If you want God to change our community, our country, and our world, He's shown us the pathway over the course of Christian history. We pray big and we confess humbly. If you're concerned for where our country is right now, and I know many of you are, the right response is not to post another clever meme on Facebook. Those don't change hearts. The right response is to beg your heavenly father to move in this place and then get on your face in confession for 
your sins personally. See, too many Christians pray sporadically and confess half-heartedly. We pray maybe when something comes up where we really need some help, and that's a good start, but we don't ever really plead with our Heavenly Father to move. And then we confess half-heartedly. We might confess, you know, vague brokenness that we vaguely struggle with. We don't confess our actual sins. And if we do confess actual sins, we primarily confess the actual sins of all of those evil people on the other side of the political spectrum, but not King David. King David models for us a life filled with prayers where he's asking God for big God-sized things. In fact, we have a whole book of the Bible filled with David's prayers. It's called the Psalms. And then, in maybe the most significant moment of King David's life, he models for us humble, broken repentance and confession. If you have your Bibles, meet me in Psalm 51. The context for this psalm is important. If you, if you wanted to, you could read the story in 2 Samuel 11. At the beginning of 2 Samuel 11, the writer of Samuel says, In the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Now that seems minor, but, but what you have to see is happening is David is sending his most trusted general out to battle for him even while he stays back at home. He's ignoring the calling that God has placed on his life. And if the pandemic has shown us anything, it's that the idle hands make for the devil's play toy. So one day David is hanging out on the roof of his palace. He sees a woman bathing over across the way on, on her roof. And rather than turning away like a godly man would, he watches. And then he abuses her, his power to get her to come over to his house. He seduces her. He gets her pregnant. You can imagine that the, the ball of, of, of sin is rolling down the hill for David at this point. He gets Joab to send Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back to the city in the hopes that Uriah will sleep with Bathsheba and he'll think that the kid is his kid, but Uriah refuses to. So eventually, David sends Uriah up to the front with a note for Joab that says, hey, put Uriah at the front of the battle and pull back from him, which is exactly what Joab does. Uriah dies and David thinks he's good to go. He thinks nobody will find him out. He marries Bathsheba. She's still pregnant with his kid. But then Nathan the prophet walks into David's palace and tells David a story. There's this one powerful man, Nathan says, who has everything he could ever want. He has it all. And there's this one poor man with just one prized lamb. But the powerful man wants the lamb, so he kills the poor man and takes the lamb for himself. And David is hot. He's angry. Nathan, who is this guy? I'm going to kill him. And then Nathan says four words that change David's entire life. You are the man. David's sin comes into the light. He unravels. And in his repentance and brokenness, he writes Psalm 51. So if you have your Bibles, meet me in Psalm 51. We're going to read it together. Psalm 51, let's start in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my 
mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop that I may be clean, and wash me that I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation." and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. There are four quick things that I want you to notice about confession in Psalm 51. First, notice the need for confession. Look what David writes in verse 4. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, there's a lie that it's easy to believe when it comes to our sin. It goes like this. Because we can't see the consequences of our sin, they don't really matter is what we think. Yeah, so I lied a little bit, but nobody will really find out. Yeah, so I lusted a little bit this week. Nobody will ever really know. Yeah, I had envy and comparison in my brain all week long, but nobody will ever really find out about that. Yeah, so I cheated on my taxes a little bit. Yeah, so I happened to be looking for joy and food that I should be getting from God. Yeah, so I worked and trying to earn my approval before God and man with my frantic busyness. Nobody will ever really know about those things. Can I be real with you? You might be right. If you continue to hide those things, it might be true that nobody will know about them. It might be true that nobody will ever find out about them, but here's the news I need to share with you this morning. God knows. And when you sinned, you sinned against him first. And because our sin is against God first, every time we sin, it drives a relational wedge between us and God. Man, for some of us, God feels so distant right now. And we've tried everything. We've tried mission trips. We've tried reading the Bible. We've tried uh, resolutions. We've tried a thousand different things and they don't seem to work. Have you considered that maybe, just maybe, the unconfessed sin that you're letting fester in your life is driving a relational wedge between you and the God you were created to know? We need to confess sin because when we sin, we sin against God first. Notice also the result of confession. Look at verses 1 and 2 in our passage. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. When we confess, there are inevitably two results. First, God forgives us. He extends mercy to us. Why? 
Well, because he's a merciful God. In fact, we know more than David knew. God sent his son to die on a cross to purchase mercy for us. Jesus bore the penalty for every one of the sins of his people, which means that every sin you confess has already been paid for by Jesus, which also means that you can know that you know that you know that God's response to your confession will be forgiveness. Some of you need to hear this this morning. God has pronounced over top of your life, forgiven. But check this out. God not only forgives us, he also cleanses us. You see, sin stains. Some of us have felt that. It's that moment when your sin brings you to a place that you never in a thousand years thought that you would get to, and you feel the heat of shame washing over your life. It's that moment when you think in your head, God could never use somebody with a past like Mine. In fact, now we have an enemy that's happy to point those things out to us. But listen, God not only purchased your forgiveness, he also purchased your cleansing on the cross. David says it later, God washed him white as snow. In fact, we know more than David knew. We know how God washes us. God washes us with the blood of his son, which means the stain of every sin you confess. Do you hear me? The stain of every sin you confess is washed pure and clean by your God, which means that you can know, that you know, that you know that God's response to your confession is cleansing. Some of you need to hear that this morning. God has pronounced over your life pure. Now, Christian, are you forgiven for that time you lied this past week before you confess it? Yes. Are you cleansed before you confess that sin that you committed this week? Yeah, you're already cleansed by that. But hear me, you won't experience the forgiveness and the cleansing that God has already bought for you apart from confessing those sins to your heavenly Father. Third, notice the fruit of confession. Look at what David writes in verses 11 and 12. Cast me not from your presence, he says, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Question, is David concerned that he's going to lose his salvation? Well, look down at your passage. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, restore to me my salvation. He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. What's he saying? Well, I'd submit to you that what David is primarily worried about is not about losing his salvation. He's worried about losing the experience of the joy of his salvation because he knows that he will not experience the joy of his salvation as long as he has unconfessed sin hanging over his head. David is concerned about a restored relationship with God, not his salvation. Now, here's what some of you might think. If I already have salvation... Does it really matter if I have a restored relationship with God? Now, listen, if that's your response, here's what it shows. You've never really experienced the joy of a right relationship with God. And cards on the table, I'd be a bit worried that you might not be saved either. But listen, if you have experienced the joy of a right relationship with God, you know you'll do whatever it takes to get that back. David is showing us the pathway. Confessing unconfessed sin. 
Fourth, notice the mission of confession. Look at verses 13 and 14. David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of righteousness. We spent an entire series in Galatians at the beginning of this year, and then another series this summer called Redemption, saying more or less that the center of the Christian life is taking the goodness of the good news of the gospel and moving it from here to here. The big idea of the Christian life is letting not just your mind be blown, but your heart be captured by the goodness of the good news of God's grace to us. Listen to how Jerry, Jerry Bridges says it. To preach the gospel to yourself means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and you flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteousness. How do you move the gospel from here to here? How does the gospel begin to arrest your heart? Uh, Jerry Bridges says it happens when you preach the gospel to yourself. Here's what he's saying. The gospel will grab your heart. The gospel will arrest you if... You're willing to confess every single one of your sins and realize that God's grace covers them all, big and small, every time. Do you know how the gospel begins to grab your heart more and more? Do you know how the gospel becomes not just good news, but the best news in the history of the universe? You confess every one of your sins, and you realize that Jesus died on the cross to pay for every single one of them in full. That's how the gospel moves from here to here. And when the gospel moves from here to here, you cannot help but want other people to hear about that good news as well. That's what we're going to talk about next week. But listen, before we get there, we've got to take a step together as a church. We're going to spend some time together virtually in this service in confession. We're going to spend some time confessing sin. And can I just be honest with you? This may not be particularly easy. This is going to be a sobering moment for many of us as we get the sin in our lives out of our head and our heart and onto a piece of paper or onto a note on our phone. And so listen, I, I knew that this was coming up for our church and I don't like preaching things that I'm not living in my life. So I spent some time in confession. And can I be honest with you? At one level, it was really good to clear the deck with God. At another level, it's really hard. To have to look on a sheet of paper at the sins that mark my life. So I wrote them all out. And some of the sins that I wrote out were, were kind of superficial, to be honest. Like as I'm writing this sermon on confession, I was getting mad at my son unnecessarily. Like he was just being a, a boy and I was just, I was getting mad at him. How crazy is that? A pastor writing a sermon, getting angry at his son while he's writing the sermon on confessing sin. That's more or less superficial. Some of it, though, was a little bit harder and more embarrassing. Like, I've, one of the things I've noticed in my heart is I've been getting jealous of some of my friends who have not been called to ministry, and they've gotten called to different vocations that allow them to spend a global pandemic just, like, apparently hanging out in the woods and doing nothing. I've had this discontentedness too often in this season. Some of it is just downright disgusting. One of the things that I've noticed in my heart for the last season of time is that I care about being holy. But to be honest, I care way more about seeming holy. One of the things that I've begun to notice in my heart, and this, in my opinion, is disgusting, is I 
care about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, but I care way more about seeming like I have love and seeming like I have joy and seeming like I have peace than actually having love, joy, and peace. Do you know whose sin that sounds like? The Pharisees. That's exactly how they lived, and too often I live like the Pharisees lived. What's on your list? Listen, in a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to do this, and it's just going to be you and God. You want to speak yours over a video that we're putting on the internet like I have, but before your heavenly Father, you get to take the sin in your life, get it out of here, out of here, and I want you to take out a sheet of paper or take out a note on your phone, and I want you to write down the sin in your life. Write down every one you can think of. You don't have to unnecessarily search your heart, but get all the sin that you can think of out of your heart and your head and onto a piece of paper or onto a note on your phone and then we're going to do one more activity. All right, you have all of your sin out of your heart, out of your head, onto a sheet of paper, onto a note on your phone. But here's what you need to know. Christians don't stop with confessing sin. We, we do confess sin, but we don't stop there. We also remember that Jesus, our Savior, has paid for every one of those sins. As it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he, God, our Father, is faithful and just to forgive our sins. How? 1 John 2, 2, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who died to pay the penalty for every single one of those sins. We need to remember that our sins have been paid for in full by Jesus, our Savior. So here's what I want you to do. On the sheet of paper where you wrote down your sins, on the note on your phone where you wrote down your sins, in big capital letters, I want you to write this phrase, paid in full by Jesus. Like seriously, right over top of the sins, on that sheet of paper, paid in full by Jesus. At the bottom of the note on your phone, paid in full by Jesus. Do you feel how this is good news? Jesus, our Savior, let his body be broken so that we might be forgiven for every single one of our sins. And Jesus allowed his blood to be poured out so we might be cleansed from the shame of every one of our sins. And as we remember the goodness and grace of our Savior in the face of the reality of our sin over and over and over again, do you know what will happen? The goodness of the good news of the gospel will move from here. It won't just blow our minds. It'll arrest our heart and we'll live in the joy of being loved by a gracious and glorious Savior day by day. I want that for you. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. God, you paid for all of them. Every sin written on every single piece of paper for Fellowship Bible Church has been paid for in full by our Savior. That is glorious, unbelievable, mind-blowing, life-changing good news. Help us to feel it today. Help us to feel the glory of paid in full by Jesus. Help it to grab our hearts in fresh ways today. We love you, King Jesus. Thank you that you've not only forgiven, you've also cleansed. That you've spoken over our life, both forgiven and pure, because of your body broken and your blood poured out for us. This is the best news in the history of the universe. Help us to live in it every single day as we bring our sins to you and realize that every single one of them has been forgiven and cleansed by our great and glorious Savior. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about fellowship or how to get connected, visit our website at fbclife.org and follow us on social media, 417 Fellowship.